This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Did you see any of the live stream of, uh, yeah, St. Joseph's Hamil- uh, Healthcare Hamilton doing their uh, kidney transplant? So I'm up at Airport Ford and I'm getting my car serviced and uh, I'm watching this. Because we started, we talked about it yesterday, uh, obviously on the air, what was going on, and we were watching it uh, while we were talking on the air. And while I wasn't really watching it, I was sort of peering through my hands. I was peering through my fingers with my hand over my face, uh, watching this. And uh, and it was funny. I was I was showing people up at the car dealer. Look at this. You guys are working on my car. Look at this. This guy working on some guy's kidney. It's incredible. Uh, and, it, and it was fascinating to see and uh, so great to see that uh, uh, Salt Fleet got into it and uh, showed it on the big screen. Kids just absolutely uh, loved it. And why wouldn't they? Uh, you know, I've got a 14-year-old daughter and she can't get enough of the medical type shows. So when they see it in real life, it's it's an incredible experience. All right, as I mentioned, uh, St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton live streamed a kidney transplant yesterday. Students at Salt Fleet were watching it on their big screen. The students also had the opportunity to ask questions uh, across Twitter and have them answered by doctors. Uh, what a great experience. Uh, here's what uh, Dr. Anil Kapoor had to say after the surgery. There was no hiccups or complications we were worried about. Uh, the, the, really, the proof of the pudding is that it made urine right away, and so that means the kidney's already working, uh, and we're very, very pleased with that and happy for the family. Uh, incredible. Let's bring in Dr. Darren Trelevin, Medical Director, St. Joseph's Healthcare Transplant Program, and is with us now. Hello, Darren. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. I'm, I'm very happy, too. Everything went very, very well. So uh, where were you when all of this was happening? What was your involvement? Well, so I was helping answer the questions. So I was in the control room outside the surgery, watching the surgery, which was kind of a treat for me, too, because I don't usually get to do that. I'm a medical doctor. I work in the hospital, and I'm usually buzzing around doing other things. So it was, it was really cool, very interesting. It was amazing to see the surgeons work. The whole operating room works like clockwork. And as you could tell, they're used to filming, so things went off really well. We couldn't be more pleased. You, you talked about the the mood in the control room, and I've got so many quests are in the control room, in the operating room, uh, and I've got so many questions to ask. But one of the things I did notice is the calmness and the precision in which these people operate. It really is something to watch, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic, and and it's one of the things that sort of came together for this event. So. Um, our, our hospital is a teaching hospital, and that extends in a big way to surgery. And so surgeons now use more and more technology, and the way they learn from each other is with video. So they're really confident in, in using video. They're used to the equipment, and the operating rooms are all pretty state-of-the-art with uh, being able to show cameras around the room. So it wasn't much of an imposition or that far out of their ordinary day. They don't always have microphones like that, but... But it wasn't a big stretch for them, which was part of the confidence that we had in moving forward. How did this all come about? Well, it came about really t- to be perfectly blunt with the expertise of the public re- relations and communications team at our hospital. So these are very smart folks that are interested in making connections. And they were looking at our kidney and urinary program, which is a really large program with it's probably one of the biggest in Canada, and there's so many stories to tell. And to be, I mean, I'm biased. I'm I'm involved in transplant, hmm. but it all kind of culminates in a kidney transplant. So there's, you know, 
20 or 30 different clinicians involved helping take care of these individuals. They have to have meetings over a year, and it all comes together almost like a stage production anyway. Hmm. And, and twice a week. Well, yeah, we do this twice a week. So, so the living transplants are cool in that you can kind of control them, and they occur on Wednesdays. And, you know, sometimes we do two or three of those at a time, but that only happens a couple times a year. Um, but most of the other kidney transplants come in 24-7, and I, I must say they occur in the middle of the night. So if you want to see calm, you should see those guys in the middle of the night do their stuff. And, and uh, they do that at least two, two times a week. Uh, our record is uh, 10 in three days. So we really push the limits sometimes, and, but luckily our surgeons are in good shape in many ways. Uh, you talked about technology and how this helps other doctors, training, teaching, that sort of thing. Uh, what about getting into, into the high schools? This is a great idea. That was a rush, and that's where everything came together and where I really have to acknowledge the great ideas of our team to open our doors in the hospital to the community. We do great things at this hospital every day, and to be able to show off a little bit, especially involving you know, the wonder of our future learners or our future doctors and nurses, that, that was the key here. And I went to Salt Fleet in the morning on Monday. Their teachers were engaging. Their principal, Mr. Graham, met me and stayed the whole time. They were fully committed. They were just wonderful. I highly recommend the experience to any other professional that wants to open their doors. So uh, you manned uh, a control room where the questions came in. Talk about that. What were some of the frequently asked questions? That was really fun. So I had somebody working with me, and we tried to answer every single question that came in, and there were lots of great questions. You know, the, I think one of the standouts was when we were watching the sewing of the artery, the students wanted to know, wasn't their blood going to be leaking out around the stitches? So, you know, just great questions like that. Um, where we, unfortunately, you kind of have to rely on the miracle of biology because I'm not sure how the cells move in there so quickly to stop the bleeding. But, but uh, anyway, I was able to handle all of those questions, and we answered as many as we could. And, and it, I don't know if you uh, have, have heard about some of the stats, but the live stream reached more than 121,000 Facebook users. And this was, I, we believe, the first live streaming surgical event in Canada. And then now within 24 hours of the surgery, we've had over 450,000 Facebook users that were reached with the show. And 3,000 people asked us direct questions as a result of this. That is unbelievable. Uh, surprised by the reaction of the kids, surprised how intense this was for them and how much they were interested. Yeah, I I think, you know, it wasn't for everybody. I think some of them had to avert their eyes, but, you know, that's, <laughs> That's the rub, right? So some of them were kind of fascinated by the razor's edge of all this. I mean, fortunately, it's very safe surgery. And as I've said already, we do this quite a bit. It's a routine, and that's, the, that's where the safety is. Um, but, but they were all engaged and asking questions. And this was the miracle. You know, it's, the timing is right. It's 2017. We've got all these cool technologies in terms of providing video uh, we can really reach out much more easily to people. We had a lot of strategy around trying to make this safe and seamless for the patients. So we can do little short, short bursts and cut away and provide other information. If the patients, for example, if things weren't going well, we had a lot of plans to move away and just show stock footage of a kidney transplant from the week before. Wow, you were prepared. 
Uh, how does it make you feel that, you know, somewhere in that crowd of kids is the next surgeon? Some, like, you've inspired kids to do this somehow, or, or, you know, or some form of medicine, perhaps. Yeah, I, I am struck by how effective it was, uh, and I think we're going to get a lot of feedback from the community as time goes on. I plan on visiting other high school students. I was on the radio with a high school student yesterday, and she was just bubbly and sparkling with delight about the idea of maybe doing a, a career like this. The whole hospital's got lots of room um, to help stimulate um people in our community. So there's all kinds of great teamwork that's gone on in every level. The nurses are an integral role. Our communications department is, has all kinds of great things. Our hospital administrators are just happy to be able to help people. So it's a great place to work, and I'm happy to feature that. Dr. Darren Trelevin has been with us, Medical Director, St. Joseph's Healthcare Transplant Program, of course, yesterday, uh, live streaming a kidney transplant. Darren, uh, good for you guys. You knocked it out of the park. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for being so interested to yourself. Thank you. I was, but I was peering through my fingers through the whole thing. I, you know. As long as you were sitting down. That's right. Always concerned of your safety. The last thing you want to do when you're getting lightheaded is be standing, of course. Uh, Dr. Darren Trelevin, Medical Director, St. Joseph's Healthcare Transplant Program. Honestly, I'm in getting my car serviced. I'm watching this thing. It was bizarre. Uh, let's bring in Christina O'Leary, science teacher at Salt Fleet District High School, uh, part of the program, of course, uh, that watched the whole uh, thing live. Uh, hello, Christina. How are you today? Uh, hello, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So what was it like watching the kids watch this procedure? It was amazing. The kids were so engaged. It was, it was shocking at times how glued to the screen they were. And not even just that, they, as soon as the feed would go away, they were just, they were just wanting more. They just kept <laughs> wanting more. <laughs> like when you're at home and you unplug the Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah, exactly. So are you surprised at that? Why do you think um, this is the case? Why do you think this happened? Well, I just think it's an experience that they've never seen before. We, yeah. we talk about these procedures and we have dissections in our biology labs, but this is something totally surreal to them. They don't understand really the procedures that are going on and the detail that goes into surgery. And we don't have the opportunity to give this to them in our classroom. So for St. Joe's Hospital to pair with us and allow us to have this opportunity and kids to be able to ask the questions in real time was just amazing. Uh, Did anybody compare it to TV or the difference of what they may have seen on some sort of Hollywood show? Absolutely. I heard references to Grey's Anatomy so many times. They said, it doesn't look like it does in TV or in movies. And Isn't that so? Like, of course it does. It doesn't. Um, but I think for them, just to have a real life experience is to see how it's happening every day and how many of these surgeries are happening daily and yearly in all of our hospitals around Hamilton. Um, it really gave them great perspective. And not even just that, how many people it takes for one of these surgeries to mm to be pulled off. It's just, it was amazing for them. Any squeamishness at the school? I was nervous about that, I have to be honest, but the kids, they were great. I, especially in the first incision, I was like, I'm a little bit nervous, someone's going to pass out. <laughs> That's the tough one. The first yeah, one's yeah. always the toughest. Exactly. And I, I don't think they were expecting to see the detail that they did. Yeah. Um, so what was the, the reaction like in the room? What did they, did you, lots of oohs and ahs? Lots. Yeah. Yes, lots. And where, when is it coming back? What are we going to see next? 
Um, and especially when the kidney pinked up and you saw the kidney creating, making urine right away. Yeah. I think that was a really um, pivotal moment for some kids, seeing how our body is just such an amazing vessel. Uh, so do you think you've inspired any in that class? I mean, it must be like somewhere, somewhere there must be at least one in there. I think so. There were a couple kids that uh, were interviewed with some different news outlets, and you can see in, in the articles that were printed in the Toronto Star and the Spectator that some kids really, it allowed them to narrow down what they wanted to do. They knew they wanted to be in medicine in some form, but they didn't know in what direction. So for some of them, I think it may solidified, maybe, mm-hmm. or even potentially just narrow down what they think they could do versus what they don't want to do. Um, yeah, lots of us aren't surgeons or, uh, or have the capability to do so. How does this inspire kids who may not be in this field or who, or who may not be searching, uh, you know, for something in this field? How does it inspire them? Well, I think it just allows them to see that there are so a lot of students think that when you're going to go into medicine or if you want to go into work at a hospital, that the doctors or nurses are the only jobs available. And that's mm. not the truth. They know that there are so many different programs that are out there for them that they can enter into a college program. It doesn't necessarily have to be university bound or even to the trades that all of these positions are available in our hospitals. And it allows them to see that they they don't have to be a doctor. You do not have to be a nurse. That if you want to work with patients and help people and work in the medical field, there are so many options out there for everybody. Uh, What did you as a teacher take away from this? Well, I think I took away, I was very proud of my students. I think that they showed such great interest and um, attention to what was happening. And I think for me, seeing that the partnerships that we had with St. Joe's, that these kind of opportunities, we need to have more of them. And really just to let the kids have these experiences with the community and and allow them to see what's out there beyond the, the walls of the school is just such a good learning experience, and we need to have more of this. You know, it's funny you should say that, because this is probably an event which all of these kids will remember their entire life, whether they're in this field or not. You know, I mean, I'm sure when you were a kid, there were certain things that happened in your school that you remember. I remember us all gathering to watch the space shuttle, the first space shuttle land uh, and return to Earth. Do you think this is one of those incidents or situations where the kids will remember this for a lifetime? I hope so. I, I think they will. Um, if, that, if that's what they take away from this, then I think we did our job. Christine O'Leary has been with us, science teacher at Salt Fleet District High School. Uh, of course, uh, they were involved in watching a live stream of the St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton kidney transplant and got to ask questions as well. Christine, a great job. Congratulations. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A new type of cigarette. That heats tobacco rather than burning it is being rolled out. Uh, Vaping, of course, uh, something similar, but not really. Uh, With some people saying that this reduces the risks associated with smoking, manufacturers claim it removes up to 90% of the chemicals found in cigarettes, but questions remain without solid evidence. To talk more about all of this, David Hammond is with us, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo in the Public Health and Health Systems, and is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, We appreciate that. What are your thoughts on this new type of cigarette? Well, they're new. They're not so new. Uh, Some of the companies had designed and been selling these products for a couple of decades. Um, But they're certainly confusing for people. Um, So, you know, for your listeners, what these do is they're tobacco products 
they heat the tobacco to a lower temperature, so they don't actually produce smoke. They just produce vapor. Um, and that's kind of similar to e-cigarettes, but the difference is that these products heat tobacco, whereas e-cigarettes just heat nicotine in a solution. Right. So they're somewhere between your conventional cigarette and your e-cigarette. Uh, I don't want to say one's better for you than the other or one's yeah. worse uh, for you than the other, but um, w- which one would be more harmful? Well, I tell you, anything that doesn't involve smoke and inhaling smoke is almost certainly likely to be less harmful. Right. So nothing compares to conventional cigarettes in terms of their level of harm. Most of the toxins and things like that come from the smoke itself. Um, And so, uh, you know, we don't know how much less harmful e-cigarettes are than conventional smoked cigarettes, but uh, we know that it's going to be substantial. Now, these products, again, probably fall somewhere between e-cigarettes and conventional cigarettes. But, Mm. look, they're only going to have any sort of public health benefit if they convince people to stop smoking cigarettes and no smokers switch. Uh, The concern is that if smokers don't switch, um, but these are a great sort of new starter product because they don't smell and because they're kind of cool, then that actually could add to the public health burden. So how do they work? Well, uh, most of them, they're, some of them are a little bit different, but usually uh, they have like a battery power. So what you do is, is um, the, uh, what the one we have right now, IQOS in Canada, it looks like a short cigarette, mm-hmm. and you put it in something that looks like a little holder, and you press a button and the light goes on, and what it does, it heats it, and then it, you inhale the vapor. And then when you're done, you'd throw out that cigarette, and then you would go and put another one in when you want to do it the next time. Are these smaller cigarettes more concentrated than a standard cigarette? Well, here's the problem is we don't really know because the companies don't have to, you know, test these before the market. The way that our law works is they can just start selling them. And, you know, I've bought myself some, um, and you can do that now in Canada. So we don't know. They say to us that it's a similar type of tobacco. It's got a little bit more moisture, so it doesn't, you know, it's less likely to burn. Mm. But we don't really know. And that's one of the problems, because as most of your listeners will be aware, the industry has a bit of a credibility problem when it comes to talking about science and health risks. Um, you know, in Canada, most people are surprised to know that the companies didn't admit that smoking caused disease until about 2000. So um, we can, again, things that don't produce smoke are probably going to be less harmful, but we need some of our own evidence on this. Are they regulated for sale now? How does this fit into the current system we have? Well, they're treated like cigarettes, so they can only promote or advertise in the way that cigarettes can, and that's not too many places or venues right now. Um, But there's no barrier to bringing them to sale. So it's a little bit odd that if you want to market a medicine or something like that, you have to go through clinical trials. If it has tobacco product, it can go right into the stores. So it, um, it can be sold and promoted similar to cigarettes. Uh... So how is this different from vaping other than a liquid versus tobacco? Is is vaping not increasing it to a hotter level? No, it's it's a similar principle. principle? Yeah, it's just what you're heating. So in theory, e-cigarettes, you know, some have different flavors and things like that. But in in theory, you're heating, think of it this way, fewer chemicals. Right. Because it's just nicotine in a solution with some flavors. Um, this, you're heating a tobacco blend, and so that's going to probably create more chemicals, potentially more toxins. But look, that's the comparison that I haven't seen from the industry. Um, because if e-cigarettes are already doing the job that these 
heat not burn tobacco products are doing, then really they probably don't have any value from a health perspective. But you've asked one of the key questions, which is, are they more... Uh, enjoyable to use, potentially addictive, and are they similar or are they different health from e-cigarettes? So where does Health Canada stand on this? They're treating them just like cigarettes. Is that it? Is uh, well, or will there be more investigation and 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 thought put into this? I mean, hopefully so. But look, this is a tricky one. Um, we need to be honest with consumers that vapors almost certainly less harmful than smoke. But then this is a lot closer to tobacco product. So um, the short answer is we don't know. And we're sort of playing catch up here in terms of buying the products and trying to get them tested and understand who wants to use them. So um, you know what? Health Canada and people like myself aren't that different from consumers on this issue and that these are sort of novel products and and we need to... um, need to understand what they're all about. So is Health Canada testing this? Are they doing studies on these? You know, I can't speak for them and I don't know. I, I, I do believe that the company has shared some information from them. Um, uh, I can say that, you know, groups like myself are doing independent testing. Um, so, you know, you, they, you could ask them, but it's not really known. Um, do you think this is a game changer or a Hail Mary pass for the tobacco industry? Look, it could be a game changer. You know, the head of Philip Morris has come out and said, we're really enthusiastic about these, and we see this as the start of us stopping to sell cigarettes. Hmm. Well, 1997, their CEO said that he would shut down all of Philip Morris factories if cigarettes were shown to cause lung cancer. That was in 1997. I don't think they've shut down their factories yet. So um, it could be. If smokers are willing to switch to these or tolerate these, um, whether you wait for tobacco companies or not, it then gives the government an option to actually start turning the screws on conventional cigarettes if people can, you know, address their nicotine addiction through a less harmful product. Is traditional uh, tobacco losing money to e-cigarettes? Is this their their game plan? Well, all the major multinationals actually own and market e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Philip Morris International, who sells this heat not burn ICOS in Canada, they're also selling and developing more e-cigarettes. So there's a, you can think of this as a continuum, and they want to be in that whole continuum. Um, so, you know, it's quite clear that we've had a lot of people switching to vaporized nicotine. That could be a good thing. And frankly, I don't care who makes money off of it. Um, but those things are only going to work if it removes the number of smokers in the market. And it's a little bit unclear how much that's happening in Canada to date. Uh, obviously, there's been lots of study done on cigarettes. What makes this different? It, same thing with vaping. Uh, Health Canada obviously must be studying the, yeah. the, all of these. I think so. Uh, and, you know, we do have laws that say that the companies have to disclose certain things about their products. So Health Canada, you know, I think that happens at the end of the year. So these products are new enough that Health Canada should be getting information on them. But some of the information we need is, you know, look, we've had smokeless tobacco, chewing tobacco on the market for decades. That's less harmful than cigarettes, but it doesn't help because people continue to smoke. So what we need to know most of all is who's attracted to these products? Are kids attracted to them? And is it adding to the number of smokers in the country or is it subtracting? And that is the sort of a natural experiment that we're going to have to track over the next little while. What about messaging on packages? Great question. So right now, there's no unique or specific messaging to these products. Um, You know, they have to, um, as I've seen them, they don't have picture warnings on them. I think they have messages like we have for smokeless tobacco. Um, 
but th these are products are all so new. I mean, I haven't even seen some of them that are out there in the stores. So um, it's a bit of an exploration. Uh, don't you think it's kind of odd that uh, a company this large and with with uh, you know offices here um, that that there wasn't some sort of regulation before all this is launched? I mean, you know, the whole e-cigarette thing. You know, yeah. uh, nobody's really sure how it started, where it yeah. started. It came from overseas, what have you? Uh, are you surprised this hasn't raised more red flags for Health Canada? They weren't ahead of this. Well, look. Part of it is just this historical oddity where, you know, you couldn't sell nicotine gum, which has almost no risks at all. I mean, you still can't sell that in as many places as you can sell cigarettes. So cigarettes have always got this, like, presidential veto in terms of being on mm. the market and things like that. So I think part of it is just that historical accident working against them. And that, um, But... You know, I think they're doing what they can, um, and part of this is industry innovation, uh, and it's we've always been playing catch-up to the industry. Their scientists are far more resourced and, and skilled in, that, in many cases than those outside the industry. So this is the disadvantage we've, been, we've, we've had for, you know, six decades now. Where do you think this is going to go? Where do you think this product's going to go? And is it, is it available in other parts of the world? Are other parts of the world doing this? You know, they're t they test marketed some of these products in Japan because Japan, you know, they love sort of novel techie yeah. type things, and it's done quite well there. Where's this going to go? I don't know, but I think it should be directed in terms of the public health interests. And, and let me be clear, if these products divert people away from smoking, they can have a public health benefit, but there's no guarantee that that's the case. So these, how these products are packaged and marketed and who, used them, who uses them, they should be directed by public health rather than uh, probably the industry's interests. David Hammond has been with us, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo in the School of Public Health and Health Systems. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Rob Cunningham, Senior Policy Analyst at Canadian Cancer Society, and he is with us now. Hello, Rob. How are you today? Hi there. Very good, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Rob. What are your thoughts on these things? Well, um, you know, it is a new product. Uh, the tobacco industry knows a lot more about it uh, than we do. You know, certainly it's a tobacco product, and uh, you know, Health Canada's position and, and our position is that all tobacco products um, should be discouraged. Uh, you know, certainly over time, uh, historically, the industry has brought forward new products, and part of their objective, such as for light and mild cigarettes, was to grow the market or perhaps slow its decline. And I'm, and I'm certain that's part of their objective. Uh, so uh, do you think this is more of a Hail Mary pass than a game changer? Well... Uh, you know, time will tell exactly how the sales volumes go. I mean, as um, Professor Hammond was indicating, in Japan, there have been some increased sales. Although in that country, my understanding is that e-cigarettes e you know, with nicotine are, are not allowed for sale. Uh, whereas in Canada and most other countries, they're widely available. So it may be that if e-cigarettes are available in a country, the, the potential volume of sales for this product category may be very little. Uh, because e-cigarettes are taking up uh, that space. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, you know in, in some respects, um, you know, the industry, you know, knows what they're doing. Um, but clearly part of their objective is that they're hoping uh, for something that, yeah, we've we, we seen this long-term decline in terms of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And they want to have people, they want to keep the market as big as they can. 
we've certainly heard that uh, supporters of, of, of e-cigarettes say that it does great things to help people reduce or, or get off cigarettes. Do you see the same potential with this product? Well, I don't think I can say that. I mean, you know, for e-cigarettes, there's no tobacco in it. Yeah. It does provide the nicotine um, that, you know, people can be addicted to. Uh, Health Canada's position um, is that they bring forward uh, a new regulatory framework for e-cigarettes. Uh, in fact, what the Health Minister, Jane Philpott, has said is to provide uh, a, a different product. Um, and, and e-cigarettes are less harmful than conventional cigarettes uh, for those people who are unable to quit. And so you do have uh, that product product category that is uh, available um, in, in, you know, with, with a different treatment than tobacco products. Uh, so you already have something in that sense that um, is available. So uh, how quick do you think Health Canada, will, Health Canada will be to jump on or restrict this in some way? We were talking about packaging or warnings or, or that sort of thing. Will this be in the same category as e-cigarettes, do you think? Or because it does have tobacco, will still fall under the tobacco umbrella? It'll fall under the tobacco umbrella. So, uh, so it'll be subject to federal and provincial laws on tobacco. You know, you won't be able to sell to minors. There's restrictions on the advertising. Um, uh, you know, there's restrictions depending on the province. Well, certainly for Ontario with respect to flavors. Um, and so it'll, it'll, it'll be subject to the tobacco laws. What about young people and, uh, you know, using devices, using things like uh, e-cigarettes and such and, and nicotine and such? Do you think this is designed to appeal to that market? Well, I don't know really what the internal marketing documents and strategies are of the tobacco industry. We certainly know from documents that have become on the public record in court cases that they've had a long history of marketing to kids uh, underage. Um, and they've been very successful at it. Uh, they're the masters um, of that. Certainly, um, you know, kids, uh, we do know that there's a lot of youth that are using e-cigarettes. Some of the youth use of e-cigarettes is for substances of nicotine, you know, such as uh, marijuana or hashish oil and so on. Uh, kids are good with technology, for sure. Um, so, um I, I just don't know of data from other countries, you know, with respect to youth use. But, you know, in terms of gimmicks and technology, certainly it has a potential to, uh, you know, for kid use. But I, I don't think I can answer any, with early, certainly at an early stage. But for the tobacco companies, it's not an early stage. And what we don't have the advantage of is all of their research and all of their secret strategies. Of course, they say that they're going to not market to kids. Um, but they've said that for decades and they have marketed to kids. And uh, they really need <laughs> something to replace all those smokers that are dying and quitting. Hmm. Did you see this product coming? Were we aware that this was coming, or was this did this surprise people? Well, it has been introduced in other markets. The industry did say that they're going to introduce it uh, into Canada um, last fall, so we knew it was coming. Uh, how big a gamble is this for cigarette companies? Uh, I used the term Hail Mary Pass before. What if this does fail? Well, uh, they have such a successful business now with cigarettes. Yeah. They're making a huge amount of money. Um, and globally, of course, smoking is on the rise in low- and middle-income countries. Um, still, you know, and now we, we, we are having more progress in terms of legislation adopted in low- and middle-income countries um, that, that is helping to suppress what would otherwise be sales growth. But they're making a ton of money and it's, because cigarettes are really inexpensive. And most of your, um, your, 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 best, your customers are addicted to the product, and their choice is not to smoke, but they keep at it. So if this doesn't work for them, they have all kinds of other means to make a lot of money. Hmm.
Um, if this works for them, um, it's another aspect. It's one of their, their initiatives that will make a lot of money for them. Uh, how concerned is a Canadian Cancer Society uh, with e-cigarettes and vaping and young people? So we certainly don't want youth to use those. Um, and uh, we do have some measures that are in place. Um, in Ontario, you can't sell e-cigarettes to someone under the age of 19. Um, there's going to be some federal legislation with some provisions to restrict advertising. Um, there's more that Ontario can do because we now have eight provinces that have adopted legislation, including to prohibit um, the use of e-cigarettes wherever smoking is banned and to, to prohibit displays in retail stores, but with an exception for vape shops, um, specialty vape shops. So Ontario has adopted that legislation, but it has been a year and a half and it has not been proclaimed into force. Hmm. So that so that's a, a gap. That's easily, you know, it's just they, Ontario government just to have a flip a switch and say it's going to come into force in such a date. But that is um, that is a measure that uh, other provinces have, but Ontario does not yet. Rob Cunningham has been with the senior policy analyst, Canadian Cancer Society, talking about smokeless cigarettes. Rob, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, phone lines always open, 905-645-3221, start 9900 on your cell. Vic's on the line. Vic, what are your thoughts on all of this? Uh, I think the cigarette company should be charged uh, because uh, I've been smoking now for 50 years. My, I could kill my brother for getting me started. Hmm. But uh, people uh, have got to be aware, too, uh, that there is uh, courses for this. The reason why I wanted to get on and talk to you was because uh, my wife is a smoker, too, and we're both going on May 18th to the public library, mm-hmm. and it's a class. Uh, it's all paid for. They give you uh, free patches or gum, mm-hmm. your choice, and uh, they follow up with you to see how you're doing. And uh, I have two small grandsons, and uh, I, I want to be around for a while to enjoy them. So that's why I'm going to this course, and I think it's going to be really hard for me because I've been smoking so many years. What uh, have you tried to quit before, Vic? Yes, uh, I quit, uh, and I could have kicked myself. I had stopped for six months, Mm -hmm. and uh, just with stress and everything else, I started back up again. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think uh, this day and age, everybody is so stressed out to worry about bills and stuff like that. And people that do smoke, it's harder for them to quit because of the stress and everything. Uh, How long ago was that, Vic, that you tried to quit? Uh, About 10, 15 years ago. Do you think it'll be different this time? I I think it'll be different because I have my two grandsons in my corner. Hmm. So I really want to push for this. So does my wife. And we want to, so that's why we're going on uh, actually next week to the course that the public library down on uh, York Street puts on. And people should be aware of that if they want to quit. I don't know the number offhand, but it's through the public library down there. And it's a free course. Well, Vic, good luck to you and your wife. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thanks for calling and spreading the, the information. I, I'm sure that uh, your story resonates with lots. Good luck, Vic. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Uh, there you go. Uh, the grandkids. Grandkids inspiring them to uh, to finally quit. And uh, good for Vic for uh, taking advantage of public programs that are out there to help you quit. 
Uh, he, of course, referring to one uh, coming up May 18th at the Public Library. But, of course, if you go on the City of Hamilton's website and, and, uh, and look under health, you will find more of these sorts of programs if, in fact, you want to take the ball and run with it the way that uh, Vic has. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. James Comey wrote, uh, of course, FBI director fired by Donald Trump, wrote in a farewell letter to the FBI that he had long understood that the president could fire him for any reason or no reason at all at any time. To talk more about all of this, Richard Painter is with us, professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and is with us now. Hello, Richard. How are you today? Very well. Very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, I guess the first question, why now? What are your thoughts on the timing of all of this? Well, uh, we're in the middle of the investigation of the uh, Russian uh, espionage into the United States and the um, uh, coordination of that uh, activity with anyone in the Trump campaign. Uh, there's certainly some strong ties between Russia and people in the Trump campaign. And that's a very important investigation. And uh, to fire the FBI director in the middle of that is entirely inappropriate. Uh, it's certainly a decision the president should be making when he is the subject of that investigation. And neither should the attorney general. Attorney General Sessions himself had contacts with the Russians and uh, misrepresented those contacts in his confirmation hearing uh, with the United States Senate just a few months ago. Both of them should have had nothing to do with firing Comey in this circumstance. Do you think this was all part of Trump's strategy and the thought that, well, the Democrats aren't happy with Comey, Comey either, simply because of what happened prior to the U.S. election? Uh, did you think he thought that they, well, how can they cry possibly, how can they possibly cry foul over any of this? They'll be patting me on the back. Well, I, I think he, he thought he could get away with it because Comey was not uh, very popular uh, with Democrats and some, and some other people. But uh, the fact of the matter is the president... I cannot uh, be trying to uh, influence the outcome of this investigation or slow down this investigation in any way. The White House press uh, office yesterday uh, stated the White House position that this uh, investigation of the Russia matter is uh, very unimportant compared to all the other things the FBI is doing. Well, that is not the view of Congress. That's not the view of the American people. There's a foreign country that has been trying to subvert our government since the 1920s, uh, shortly after the Russian Revolution. And uh, they uh, they succeed in wreaking havoc in our uh, political system in 2016. We're going to have to get to the bottom of this. We're going to have to find out who the Americans are who coordinated with the Russians. And we're going to have to put them in jail, make sure that nobody is in this administration or anywhere in the United States government who is compromised vis-a-vis the Russians. So this investigation is extremely important. It needs to be undertaken by an independent prosecutor uh, now that Comey's gone. Uh, and President Trump is not going to be successful in uh, getting control of this investigation or slowing it down. That's not going to work. So where does this investigation go from here? Well, I think the number of members of Congress are calling for an independent prosecutor. Uh, I believe Republicans will come on board with respect to that. Uh, it's absolutely necessary. You cannot have uh, political appointees of President Donald Trump uh, uh, heading up an investigation of President Donald Trump and his campaign. That is not going to happen, particularly uh, when the subject matter is so serious. This is not uh, just a uh, an amateur burglary job like the Watergate break-in. Uh, this is uh, much more serious stuff. This involves a foreign power 
conducting espionage inside the United States, coordinating with some Americans, and we're going to have to find out who it was and deal with it. Uh, I think there's going to be a bipartisan issue. Uh, we're going to Republicans and Democrats are going to have to get on board and call for an independent prosecutor. House and Senate intelligence committees are also investigating that parallel investigation is going to be going on. And once again, I think that's going to be a bipartisan effort. And the Republicans would be absolutely foolish to downplay the importance of this. Uh, what is the chance of an independent prosecutor taking this uh, over? What needs to happen for that to happen? Well, I, I think it's quite high, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how this evolves. But uh, I think that the best way to do that now is for the president to appoint an independent prosecutor as an individual acceptable to the leadership of both political parties in the House and the Senate. Uh, so we'd agree on somebody to lead this investigation. And then through executive order of the president, uh, the independent prosecutor would be given a budget and the authority uh, to guide the investigation uh, and to make recommendations with respect to prosecution. And the president would absolutely pledge not to fire the independent prosecutor. Uh, that Those are the steps that have to be taken through an agreement, mutual agreement between the White House and Congress. And um, if the president won't agree to that, I, I think we're in a situation where uh, Congress would have to consider taking more drastic action. Can Trump attempt to derail an independent prosecutor? Uh, he could try, but I, if we have a broad bipartisan support, as I, I hope we will, uh, for an independent prosecutor, I don't think he would get away with that. Uh, the, the House and the Senate, um, first of all, conducting their own investigations. They would ramp up the pressure that way and indeed could put pressure on President Trump to say there's going to have to be an independent prosecutor or we're going to have to open up an impeachment investigation. What other conclusion uh, can the American people arrive at from the firing of Comey at this time? Um, I mean, other than trying to to derail the investigation, what possible reason uh, can he have to sell this? How is he going to sell this to the American people? Well, he's not selling it to American people. It's not working. And uh, up until this point, I think President Trump has done whatever he feels like doing and, and felt that uh, people are going to support him anyway. Uh, he's losing support. Uh, and this is a matter of critical importance to our country's national security. Uh, there's a foreign adversary. Whoever coordinated with the Russians uh, has committed treason. We need to find out what's going on. And uh, I think President Trump is going to realize that. Do, do you think Russia has incriminating evidence on Trump, or do you just think he's clumsy in the way he handles all this? He seems to create more problems for himself than anyone. Uh, I don't know who the Russians have incriminating uh, evidence on, but my guess is they have incriminating evidence on a lot of people, including leading Republican senators and uh, members of the House. Uh, that, that's their specialty, obtaining uh, this type of incriminating evidence. And that's why it's so important uh, to have a bipartisan uh, support uh, for cracking down on this, investigating it, and making sure that Americans who coordinate with the Russians for purpose of conducting political campaigns uh, will be prosecuted and will be put in jail. We cannot tolerate Russia trying to gather incriminating information on Americans and then using that in the American political system to destabilize our country. France uh, just held their election and are accusing uh, Russia of the same thing, of interference. How does that lend itself to this argument, to this discussion? 
Well, uh, it's, the Russians have been doing this uh, uh, since the 1920s, since the Russian Revolution tried to destabilize uh, the political systems of uh, Western democracies. They have traditionally had a lot of success in Europe. Uh, destabilizing countries before the Second World War, and then again after the Second World War, setting up communist regimes in a lot of Europe, and then uh, active communist parties in other parts of Europe. Much less success in the United States. Uh, but that's changed uh, now that uh, they support far-right-wing groups. Uh, they've had more success in the United States. Uh, I think the French are onto this. Uh, they saw the playbook uh, used in the United States, and they didn't want to uh, fall victim to the same thing, and they repudiated uh, this strategy at the polls. Will this uh, incident with uh, Comey? Will this be the straw that breaks the camel's back? What will this? What will this mean for Trump's future? Well, it's going to depend on how President Trump handles it. Uh, and uh, uh, President Trump does have some people in his administration who've been very close to the Russians. He had Michael Flynn, General Flynn, who was a Russian agent. Not disclosed. Uh, it's disclosed to the White House, but not to the public. Uh, he had been there for 18 days, heading up our National Security Council. We need to get the pro-Russia people out of the White House and then let this investigation go forward so we can make sure that nobody is involved in this administration who uh, coordinated with the Russians in conducting this espionage activity. If he chooses to handle this the proper way, I, I think he can, he can make it through. Um, but if uh, he swings into the cover-up mode and does more things like what he did with firing Director Comey, it's going to be a very bad situation. Wouldn't that depend on? Wouldn't that depend on if he has something to cover up or not, Richard? Well, that that indeed may be the case. But uh, I think as President Nixon learned, whatever it is you're trying to cover up is almost never as bad as the cover-up itself. Even if there are people high up in his campaign who may be in the White House now who coordinated with the Russians. Unless he himself coordinated with the Russians and knew about it, he's not in a lot of trouble. He can get rid of the people who committed the criminal activity. If he covers it up, and that's what President Nixon did, then he's going to be in a lot of trouble for covering it up. And we have a Congress that impeached the president for lying about his sex life, and that was sort of ridiculous with Clinton. But uh, we have very, very low tolerance for lying in the American political system. Uh, from our presidents, and uh, President Trump is getting himself very, very close to the line there. He's going to have to be careful uh, and make sure and disclose the truth and not obstruct justice in this investigation. Uh, why do you think that he fired Comey when he did? Does this have anything to do with the fact that Flynn was testifying earlier on in the week? Is this is this just the, the whole thing closing on in on him, do you think? I, I think it did have something to do. I, I think the Russia investigation is getting a little bit too hot for uh, yeah. uh, the comfort of uh, some people in the White House. Richard, and I, and I think that has a lot to do with it. Richard Painter has been with us, professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Richard, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Andrew Razoulis. He is a CGAI fellow and retired public servant expert on Eastern and Central Europe and Russia and is with us now. Hello, Andrew. How are you today? Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me. I'm just great. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. What are your thoughts on the timing of the firing of James Comey, uh, director of the FBI? Uh, in short, I would say that uh, he was becoming a problem for the president in terms of uh, his policies, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So that's that's a big-picture answer. 
Um, specifically, I think what was happening was that um, as as Trump has been trying, and it was part of his platform to reestablish uh, a better working relationship with Russia, uh, Comey's uh, file uh, dealing with Russia was an inconvenience, let's say. So uh, the same day, interestingly enough, that Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is visiting um, uh, Trump, he's also firing uh, Comey. And, and I think it all just comes together. Um, whether there's wrongdoing and all that, I, I, I think the jury's out on that. We'll have to let see how things play out. Um, but this certainly is ultra-political. Um, but I think if I could just walk up one step further and talk about Lavrov and the Russians, which is the, in the big picture where Trump is trying to take American foreign and defense policy, there was another very important photograph yesterday that came out of the White House, uh, in addition to the one with Lavrov, which was taken by a, a Russian photographer. But there's a White House release photograph taken around the same time, but it shows uh, Richard Kissinger sitting in the White House yeah. with, with the president. Now, that, I think, is very important because... Kissinger, as we know, is uh, is very first and foremost known for international relations uh, terms as a real politiker, and he and Richard Nixon uh, very much made that the hallmark of American foreign policy uh, in the Nixon years. Trump has been echoing those fundamental principles, and those principles are essentially American interests first, uh, business interests, uh, power interests. This is power politics as opposed to what the Obama administration and more liberal Democrats are used to uh, propo- are proponents, which is essentially a, an international order based on rules and values. This is not exactly where the Trump administration and where Trump is going. They're not devoid of values, they're not uh, oblivious to rules of international relations, but those are more of a convenience for the primary goal, which is American interest, particularly business interest. And I think Trump is very dedicated to his promise of getting jobs, and he believes in that. Uh, and and we had Reaganomics back in the in the eighties. This is Trumponomics. Whether it works or not, the jury's out. But that's where I think he's going, and that's why I think he removed Comey because Comey was in his way. Uh, does Kitch, uh, does uh, Kissinger give Trump any credibility, or does it make us question Kissinger? Well, uh, well, personally, from an international point of view, I mean, I, I, I will betray my, 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 my favorites here. I, th- I think Kissinger ha- has, has, has had a pretty good feeling for international relations. Um, and if one, but one has to accept the, the rules of the realpolitik as opposed to liberal internationalism. Hmm. And that, you know, you can't be on both sides on that one. And so, so if you accept realpolitik as being the underlying current of international relations, then Kissinger remains a credible uh, source. And uh, my reading of history in the Kissinger years is that, on the whole, they were positive for American foreign and defense policy. And so, therefore, his advice to Trump uh, vis-a-vis Russia in particular, I think, these days, uh, is to be taken as a positive thing. What will Kissinger t- say to him about Russia? How will that, that? How will that change Trump's direction, or or, I think, or well, even well, stop I think him? The direction he will reinforce it, which is essentially. How does uh, he stop him from shooting himself in the foot? I guess is my question. Well, well I think that the idea is that they want to reestablish uh, better relations with Russia, so they can deal with problems of ISIL in Syria. That mm-hmm. is in the American general political interests. And he needs to deal with Ukraine uh, to, 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 to bring that relationship closer. 
So if, if I can illustrate Ukraine as a, how, how two sides would look at it differently, Obama looked at Ukraine as a problem because the Russians had violated the rules-based international system and, and, take, and, and, and attacked the sovereignty of another country in Europe. That was, it for Obama, the problem, and therefore that had to be solved through sanctions. And until that was solved, the Russians could not be friends or allies or, if you will, partners. Mm. But for Trump's point of view, that is an inconvenience that, because he needs Russia for his interests. And in terms of what American objectives are, so he needs to solve Ukraine, but not because uh, he's obsessed with the fact that international relations were, 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 were that the international norms and values were broken in terms of sovereignty violation, but rather how do we fix this problem so that we can get on with things? So he's not going to be ignoring Ukraine; he's got to solve it. But the motivations are rather different. Ukraine is a problem, a burden in, for for Trump, whereas for Obama, it was more of a moral issue that needed to be addressed. And I think that's important to understand that those two distinctions. Is this more personal for Trump than it is diplomatic? For it's, his, because uh, of his personal interest there. It's it's what's well. I think I think all leaders are driven by their personal interests. I mean that you cannot be devoid of personal interests in international relations. That that plays a role. But I believe also that he is doing it to to support his political base. Mm. I mean that that I believe is genuine, and that is not inconsistent with his own personal interests. But the personal interest that is jobs for Americans and to build up the American economy, I think, is first and foremost in understanding his politics. So you don't think that Russia has anything necessarily on Trump and he's hiding something? That's the reason um, behind this. You know, this. I really, I, I don't think that is the primary motivator. That's, that, I think, could be uh, good conspiracy theory stuff. Uh, but I think his primary motivation is fundamental business interests and Russian interests are fundamental business interests. And I guess, let, let me just quote uh, Palmerston, the British uh, uh, prime minister in the 19th century, who I think exudes realpolitik with his statement that nations have no friends, only interests. Mm. And I think that's how you have to understand it. It's not that Trump wants to be friends with the Russians. I don't think he's particularly afraid of the Russian terms of blackmail. I don't know that. But I don't sense that. My sense is that there are logical interests of the United States, as he perceives them, to work with Russia, as he wants to work with China. Why, I mean, does, he, why does he not convey that more instead of creating confusion? Ah, well, this is the nature of the person. Um, and, and he is a fundamentally a business person, so he's not speaking in, in Kissinger terms, in terms of realpolitik. Kissinger would speak of what Metternich would say about things. I mean, I don't think Trump knows what Metternich is. So, uh, but, but Trump, so Trump is bringing his New York, uh, Brooklyn business or Queens business sort of, uh, skills to the table. Uh, they're, they're rather crude, uh, very basic, um, and, and he's very much for the moment. Um, so he has a concept where he's going, but he's living for the moment, and and and, and his mannerisms are very much in the moment. And uh, a lot of people just simply are not used to that from a president. They could he not. could he have handled the Comey situation differently? Oh sure, I mean uh, he he held that very close to the chest. Um, he he had, he got advice from a few people on that, and then and then let it go. He did it in his style. Um, I think another president would have done it in a more sort of bureaucratic form. He would have eased them out more gently. 
but I think Trump did it with a, with a splash because he wanted to do it with a splash. I also am not sure he expected the backlash that he did get. That that may have been somewhat of a political miscalculation because of the yeah. Democrats' feeling of Comey yeah, anyway, I think, yeah. and even some of the Republicans. But the Republicans seem to be rallying. But I think I think the tone from the Republic, the, the, the Democrats, you know, the Nixon stuff and the Watergate stuff, which they're all talking about. I think it's a it's a it's a little loud for Trump, and perhaps he didn't expect that. But my sense is that he'll he'll probably weather that. What do you think? Uh, what are your thoughts on the comparison to Nixon and the Saturday Night Massacre and all that stuff? Yeah, well, they're, they're, I mean, I mean, I think that's that's that, that's legitimate. I mean, Cox, the 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 the, uh, the prosecutor, was was getting close to Nixon in terms of Watergate. Now, let me not go further and suggest that 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 Comey had something illegal on uh, Trump because that may not be the case. Uh, whereas in the Nixon case, we know that there were actually illegal cover-ups uh, for the burglars and of the Watergate thing, and Nixon was was actually guilty of doing the cover-up. With Trump, we're not there yet. We don't know that, but we just know that Comey was a problem, and he got rid of a problem. Cox was a problem for Nixon, but I think a far more serious problem for Nixon. How do we you know that from history? What are your thoughts to uh, uh, what are your thoughts of the reaction of Lavrov uh, when addressing the press and uh, about uh, Comey being fired? Yeah, he's funny. I mean, that's that's uh, I've met uh, Lavrov once uh, at a ministerial visit with Minister Eagleton. Uh, Lavrov has a dry sense of humor, mm. and that's what he was doing. He was being funny. How does that play in America? Do you think? Uh, I think some, some people with a dry sense of humor will take that as dry sense of humor, and but I think the Republic, uh, the Democrats, uh, will be offended by it. Uh, does it does it not sort? And this is my opinion. Does it not sort of echo? Um, um, I guess the attitude that that Trump has for the press was he sort of blowing them off? Uh, uh, in part, uh, yes. Uh, there, the, the, there was a lot of uh, funny sarcasm that came out of Lavrov as well in, in, in a press conference that he did at the Russian embassy yesterday as well. He talked about how the, the American system, that the Americans have their democracy so well done, so strong, that how could they possibly think the Russians would interfere in the American electoral process? That was a bit of sardonic humor. Hmm. How will how will this all play out? How will the Comey firing play out, and and how will this in fact affect the investigation that's ongoing? That he was well, leading? I mean, in terms of how it plays out, it's it's very much now political. Uh, there is nothing legal in this uh, as far as we know today. So it's it's the political strength of the Republicans versus the Democrats, and uh, my sense is they they still hold the high ground. I mean, there will be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth amongst the Democrats, but I think the the Republicans can still hold uh, for today. Now, the, the 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 investigations, of course, can't be squashed. They need to be resuscitated, and of course, there'll be a new director of the FBI appointed. And the system will continue, but there may be nuances to the system, and everyone's going to play that game. That's what Washington's all about, and that's why it's extremely interesting to watch that. I cannot predict it, but it will be only interesting to watch for sure. We've only got a few seconds left. Uh, Lots are crying for a special prosecutor to come in and do an investigation. Will we see that? Not in the short term. The Republicans are holding the high ground. Nixon only gave into that when he was very much uh, in a very weak position after numerous revelations had leaked about his role uh, in the Watergate cover-up. We're not there yet with Trump. 
Andrew Rizoulis has been with us, CGAI fellow and retired public servant expert on Eastern and Central Europe and Russia. Andrew, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for the time. You're very welcome, Scott. Pleasure to do it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.